0: Welcome back to the Deal podcast show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising, and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Show. So today we have a pretty exciting founder. So we're going to be talking about expats, you know, in in LATAM. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, going from investment banking to really, you know, starting your own business. So you name it. And I find that you're going to find our guest quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tarek El-Sharif. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much and pleasure to be here.
0: So you were originally born in New York City, obviously your parents from Egypt, uh, but, uh, but give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up?
1: Well, I grew up in uh, in London, in central London, and I think uh, it's probably one of the few places in the world where my background didn't seem very strange. A lot of people from uh, different parts of the world, and uh, I didn't really think about you know, all the different uh, heritages that I had uh, growing up in London. And only when I left, when it was so complicated to answer the simple question of where are you from, did I uh, realize that it was not uh, very normal. So for me, I always say, well, I was born here, I grew up here, my family's from there. And uh, yes, it's not not an easy question to answer. But um, London was a good place for that. And I think very international, very cosmopolitan. And that's a place that I always, uh, like to go to. Uh, I was just there just a few weeks ago. I caught, uh, uh, some Wimbledon action, uh, very fortunately. Um, And yeah, I think it, for me, you know, growing up there, high school there, I thought it was a very good experience and I want, you know, my children to have something similar as well. I liked, uh, I liked the structure. I liked, you know, the, the discipline, the, uh, just the overall experience of kind of English uh, schooling. And uh, it was yeah fairly stable for a while. I I had the American passport being born in New York. So I had a longing of, you know, visiting the U.S., maybe working in the U.S., studying in the U.S. at some point. So that was always something that was uh, compelling. So all throughout high school, I uh, I had the dream that I would uh, you know end up in the states, you know relating to the states only through through movies and some vacations and uh, just through through uh, general media. But uh, at that point, yeah, I didn't have much much idea of what I was going to do. Only when I when I when I left high school, I ended up going to, to university in the States. I started, you know, thinking much more about finance and banking and uh, and this world, which, uh, which I've stayed in uh, ever since.
0: Now, in your case, I mean, you came here to do your studies. Uh, you went to Northeastern, then you did your MBA in Columbia. But uh... You entered the investment banking world and you did stay there for a while. I mean, first in New York and then in, in London. So what, what attracted you into the whole investment banking arena?
1: I think at the time it's very different uh, to its image right now. It's, it was a completely different uh, area. So I liked, you know, the markets. I liked valuations. I liked, you know, working in Excel. I, I, I enjoyed that type of schoolwork when I was uh, studying. My undergrad, and it was kind of a natural destination for for people liking that field and wanting to challenge themselves. And it also had the prestige. It sounds, uh, yeah, it, it sounds like I'm speaking about a different industry right now. But uh, that's the way it was, you know, when I when I started in JP Morgan in uh, in 2000. I think, you know, the stories that I hear about the the banking sector now that the average age has gone up, they keep having to raise salaries because of the the churn that they have. It wasn't the case, I think, then. We were still towards coming out of the end of the tech boom. So I think banking was very, very hot with all the IPOs and the M&A activity that was going on. So uh, I think it was just very, very compelling uh, for me at that point. So
0: out of being in the investment banking side, I mean, what? What did you learn about, you know, and I guess, you know, different perspectives, right? So you have the perspective, you know, from from being a U.S. investment banker and then perhaps, you know, the perspective of being a European, you know, investment banker. So so I guess from that point, what did you get to learn from perhaps, you know, the companies that were working well, from the companies that were not working so well, you know, that pattern recognition?
1: Yeah, and no, I think it was invaluable, I think, as as a foundation. And I really... I'm lucky. I think that I started my career in New York as well. I think New York is a very uh, good environment to to begin working, to to learn the right mindset and uh, efficiency and work ethic. I think that exists there. So in the investment banking world, JP Morgan was very strong in a lot of areas, but particularly, uh, let's say, on the credit side of the, uh, of the business. I think the lessons that I learned there of analyzing companies, looking at strengths, looking at uh vulnerabilities, assessing them. I think I've used those skills throughout my career. It was a very good foundation to build on, you know, and moving from large corporates to consumers and SME, which I'm doing right now on the fintech side. But uh yeah, the the, the banking world, particularly for the analyst, is is not you know, particularly rewarding. I think that's one of the surprises you get after you start working there because, you know, you're working very, very long hours. The, a lot of the work is disposable and very hard to make an impact. But you do get a crash course an accelerated learning. I think that a lot of uh, other industries don't give you. And you're working with a lot of driven people, you're working, you know, with tight deadlines and, and you know, quality of work is, is uh, very, very important. And, uh, you know, when I, when I ended up going to business school, I think the investment bankers and the consultants really stood out as far as, you know, being able to turn something around and make it professional very, very quickly. And uh, so I, I definitely, while I don't want to do it again. Maybe I wouldn't recommend it for my kids, especially, you know, with the change in the environment. I do feel it, it helped me a lot uh, in, uh, in, my, in my career.
0: Now, for you, at what point do you realize, you know, that it's time to really, you know, perhaps give your notice and get to, you know, work in your own uh, company, in, in your own idea? I mean, at what point does Sinobi, the idea of Sinobi come knocking and how do you go from ideation to, to launching?
1: Yeah, I mean, it took probably longer than it should. Let's see. I mean, I, when I started in, in JP Morgan, I think everyone's on the track at the analyst side to go to business school. So I did what what I was supposed to do. Then, after business school, you know, I I always thought I would end up doing some something entrepreneurial, but I probably took the safer, the easier way to do go back into banking again and just switching from the advisory to sales and trading. But uh, so it was good for a while. But I I, I realized, uh, you know, as I rose up that uh, it was getting less fun, you know, maybe a bit more political and and less rewarding. And uh, yeah, I just, at some point, I just thought that, uh, you know, I need to, you know, do something that I'm happier in the day-to-day more and uh, I had more control and I could have more impact and I could use different parts of my brain. So I always knew I would do something entrepreneurial and I think I just lost lost the engagement of, of my of the day-to-day in the banking and uh at the point that i left i didn't really know what i was going to do i uh i i just thought let's uh let's change the scenery let's move to another 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 country i uh just and just before i left london some of my friends from business school uh had uh introduced me to some of their friends who had a startup in london called Ebury, and that was a fx fintech uh which a lot of them were popping up in uh in london at that time and uh i joined that one letting them know that i was going to leave the country and maybe that i could set up latin america for them because i'd chosen to move to to latin america my wife is colombian And uh, we thought, uh, you know, why not, you know, not only change careers, but change the scenery a little bit. So we decided to go there. So I left being part of that fintech. And uh, when I arrived here, I just found it very difficult to work with them uh, being so far away. And it was a new business and they wanted to concentrate on Europe. So um one of the one of the partners told me you know why don't you have a look at some of these companies that are doing this new data driven lending and see if you could apply that in Colombia so I looked at the models and uh and then I thought you know this is very interesting and uh, it kind of appealed to me the 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 simplicity of it the efficiency of it and how revolutionary I thought that proposition was of instant approvals of using you know, new data sets of having that amazing UX uh, that was very different to kind of the bureaucratic slow process. And, uh, and that's, that's how uh, Zenobi began. I, di- I hired a lawyer, did a legal due diligence to see what was viable, how I could structure the product. And once I got the green light, uh, I started it. At at that time, when I arrived in Colombia, I was introduced by my brother to a local entrepreneur, somebody called Martin Shrimp, who had founded a payments company, which later became PayU LATAM, uh, which is owned by NASPERS. uh, And uh, he he was working full time there, but uh, he was a very good partner for me to at least uh, helped me network and helped me set up a business coming as a foreigner uh, to uh, to Colombia. So we, we set up the company with both of us as shareholders, uh, him maintaining his job in you and me kind of being uh, operational.
0: But this was like 2011. The world fintech at that point didn't even have any type of definition. I mean, forget even about being in LATAM. I mean, LATAM startups were like non-existent, unbelievable.
1: Yeah, and uh, not only fintech was relatively new, I think Colombia as an investable country was uh, was not viable either.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, now you have like the soft banks of the world, you know, going there, and uh, but that was, you know, completely non-existent. So, so unbelievable. So I guess for the people listening, what ended up being, you know, the the business model of Xenobi? Of
1: Yes, an Zenobi, I mean, there's, when you go into these markets, you can look around and say there's opportunity everywhere. So, uh, we decided to focus on what we thought was a very actionable item was, was consumer credit. Looked at, you know, some macro indicators such as, you know, private debt, uh, GDP, credit card penetration, all the kind of the key metrics that, that show access to credit uh, in the market, and they were, you know, uh, very, very behind, and even behind a lot of the peer group countries in, in LATAM. So we thought that was uh, kind of the lowest hanging food that we could start. And and given that there wasn't much going on on the investment side, consumer-side consumer, consumer side credit required less capital. So we thought uh, maybe that was more efficient to do it. So the idea was to create a product That would uh, tackle uh, credit inclusion, providing uh, short term credits and uh, using technology as a differentiator. So, technology as you know, to provide a UX that was more accessible, more friendly, more efficient, less paper intensive. And then, technology on the risk side to provide better underwriting, to provide more precision on the models so that you could approve some of these people that weren't passing the uh, traditional scoring uh, algorithms.
0: Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone when I met my co-founder at Pantera Mike Severson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle so Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com
1: and we would love to take a look at helping you out.
0: Now, three years ago, you guys changed the model. What happened?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of learnings because when you start that business and you you kind of project out to where you're going to be, you know, you could think, you know, we're going to be a standalone profitable company. Maybe we'll start taking deposits. Maybe we'll becoming a bank. But uh, I think as you mature, you get to see what is more viable, what what is, you know, a more sustainable model. And uh, what happened about three, four years ago is we started, went from consumer to SME. We were approached by one of the uh, governmental banks uh, to see if we could apply our consumer product to, uh, to the SME space. And when we started that product from scratch... We tweaked the model a little bit so instead of having an open product where we were attracting leads uh, from you know big tech and lead generators we thought there was a more efficient way of doing that and that efficient way of doing it is created you know more embedded products or you know a b2b2b model uh, so that we could leverage flows that were already existing so that we didn't have to capture those clients so we could have operational efficiencies we could have risk efficiencies. Uh, And uh, that proved to be, you know, very successful for us, and it became the foundation of kind of our new company, Tangelo. That we wanted that to be an attribute in all our products. You know that being embedded has, uh, you know, many significant advantages or moats for your business. You know that you that you have, uh, you know, protection from competition. You had advantages on underwriting, you have advantages on uh, on operations uh, that can help you build a much more sustainable business. And that was one of the key learnings that we had because I think differentiating yourself from your competitors, protecting yourself with structural advantages is um, is an important part of any business, I think.
0: And how has it been for you guys to kind of like have this multi-regional, you know, type of operation?
1: I think it comes with with its challenges, but we came together, you know, combining with a Mexican company that was uh, formerly known as MexaRent, and I think what made this combination easier is that we were fairly complementary. I think we were strong in some areas, they were strong in other areas so we had alignment in what we wanted to do and we didn't have to have much overlap in any of the working positions so that helped a lot and you know in, in the two countries we had different business units so the you know the goal was to bring what what we were good in colombia what we wanted to continue over to mexico and and vice versa and uh in that way everybody was was aligned and there was no you know, overlap or stepping on toes as far as uh, the management was concerned. So it's been very, very smooth. I think probably you'll write about this later on. Hopefully it's a case study, but uh, it is an example of a very good uh, combination that that made sense from the beginning.
0: Now, in your space, in fintech, you know, there's some consolidation going on. uh, And in fact, you actually just, uh, you know, ended up doing a transaction. So tell us about what's happening and also tell us about this deal that you guys did.
1: Given market conditions, I think a lot of people are going to be forced into consolidation. But in general, uh, I think it started even from last year or a little bit before uh, people thinking about combining companies. A lot of fintechs were built on, on very specific products or features. And uh, so it made sense for them instead of developing in-house, combining with companies that could Complement uh, whatever their core product was, and uh, we're seeing that a lot in uh, in uh, not only in LATAM but uh, I think across the world in uh, in, in the fintech space. And uh, it it makes sense, you know, to leverage somebody else's experience, somebody else's headcount, relationships, funding, and so forth, rather than to build everything from scratch. Uh, we we were fortunate so part of the driving factors for this combination were that the ceo of Mexarand and i went to business school together in uh, columbia university so we knew each other that was a company that was had a, a tech base but a lot of it was third party and they were looking to develop a lot of it in-house so they were going through the motions of deciding you know we build it ourselves or we partner with somebody and uh, we met in a conference in a lended conference in uh, san francisco about 3 4 years ago and uh and then that started the discussions uh and uh and then it led to us uh initially making a joint venture which was called Santeo, which we launched a couple of years ago, which was taking our SME product in Colombia and taking it to Mexico where we would provide the product and the technology and they would provide the the funding and the relationships. And then because we saw a lot more opportunities to work together and we we found that we were very aligned in just the vision of where we saw the market was going, uh, towards the end of last year, we decided to take it a step further more than a joint venture and do a more complete uh, business integration. So, I mean, our specialty was in everything technology-based, more on the, on the kind of the shorter-duration credit products, from vendor finance to kind of uh, consumer lending. Uh, they were special, specialists in asset-back lending, everything from lease sell, lease-back, secured lending, and some corporate business as well. So really... Our businesses fit very well together, and uh, there was a lot of opportunity for us to take the Colombian products and bring them to uh, Mexico.
0: And for this, for this now, for Tangelo, the, um, the resulting entity from these two companies coming together, how much capital have you, have you guys raised in total?
1: If you say historically, it's it's actually quite a lot, especially uh, on the debt side, given kind of the, the type of uh, credit products that the Mexican company was doing. So it's uh, a little bit over 120 in equity and uh, in the kind of... Uh, well over $500 million on the debt side. So I think combined, we're, we're coming up to a billion dollars, I think, in uh, in total. And that's a variety of, you know, from VCs to private equities and to some banking institutions as well.
0: And how do you think about equity versus debt for a company like this?
1: Well, debt wasn't very necessary in the beginning, especially if we're uh, managing uh, credit products. I think it really depends on the market conditions and the terms that you, uh, you get, how to split between the two i think uh, equity side for me i was always very very picky on who i wanted to work with i really viewed it as a marriage and i wanted to make sure that we had buy-in on on the strategy and we got along on a personal level and uh you know that ensured that you know the board meetings and the strategy sessions would be very very smooth on the debt side it's much more transactional uh, so it's based on the contract and the terms and so forth. As we've gotten bigger and, and post this merger, uh, the debt side has become much, much easier, much more flexible. And we have a really a diverse pipeline of different uh, uh, funding options. On the equity side now, we're looking for somebody that can take us to the next stage, whether you know, we're looking for a public market outcome or uh, a strategic uh, M&A. Uh, so we're looking for people that uh, are much more aligned with with uh, or have experience uh, on that, that side of the business.
0: And how were you able to bring foreign investors, you know, perhaps investors in the U.S., you know, like QED, you know, to invest in a company like this? Because, you know, obviously, Colombia is a, you know, it's 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 kind of like a risky bet for, for these people that are overseas that maybe are not so familiar with what's going on there.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's good and bad in being in a small market. So a small market doesn't have a lot of investors, but I think it's also easier to stand out or to make uh, an impact. So I think when the investors started to look at Colombia, I think we definitely were on the list of companies that, that, uh, that could be seen. And I think that one thing that we were lucky in is that we had five years of relative, or four years, of relative bootstrapping. And that allowed us to really refine the business, to have it working, to have it, uh, you know, positive economics, to have some of the metrics that people look for, like a QED, that they could uh, appreciate. I think once we, our first conversations with QED, they definitely looked at the product the way we did from a more long-term basis. So not look at uh, you know, how much you're charging or kind of a unique economics, but more lifetime value, more recurrency, you know, uh, looking at some of the metrics that are good predictors of a sustainable, uh, company and a sustainable, uh, product. And, uh, I think, uh, we were very, very, uh, aligned with, with their vision and they definitely saw us in the market as, as a standout, uh, given the results that, uh, that we'd had.
0: So when it comes to uh, to building companies like this partnerships are a critical aspect, no? So so tell us about you know the importance of partnerships in, in fintech.
1: Yeah, I think the the new uh, fashionable items the last couple of years is is the term embedded and and that's you know that's that's got to do with partnerships and I think you know when I think a lot of fintech companies started like ourselves you know you look to do everything yourself to make it more efficient to rely on yourself but I think you come to realize that you know, you have specific advantages and it's better to mitigate your weaknesses uh, through partnerships. So, uh, you know, two glaring, you know, hard to resolve weaknesses are always going to be on on the credit business, always going to be growth through customer acquisition and then uh, funding cost uh, constraints. So partnership, you know, we use that to, to tackle the first one. Uh, so instead of us uh, looking to you know build up our customers base from scratch, you can leverage somebody that is looking for a credit product that has ready customers ready with a history and so forth. Uh, I think that's very complementary. I think uh, fintechs that are part of the infrastructure that are enablers, I think, are much more sustainable, and I think that's the the newer fintechs. Th- those are the ones that I think are, are doing well and, and going to uh, survive. Because I think initially the talk was all about disruption and replacement, replacing the banks. And I think that's proven to be, you know, a little bit uh, of an exaggeration to, to what, it, what, what has happened in the end.
0: So imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Tarik, and you wake up in a world where the vision of tangelo is fully realized i mean what what does that world look like
1: let's say for what what would what does that mean in latin america i think you know increasing you know general access to to credit and most businesses having viable uh credit options to support uh their business i think that would transform you know major parts of the economy uh for for businesses for consumers uh and generally generally be a positive uh impact i mean we see ourselves as kind of one of the leaders uh in this forefront in in providing sustainable credit solutions uh for businesses so if if our uh, dreams were to come true i think we would be embedded with you know most of the large corporates uh, and multinationals in the area and will be, have a presence uh, across the region. And uh, we will be, you know, uh, branded as kind of the, uh, the trusted credit originators and distributors uh, in the region.
0: Nice. Now, Tarek, imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, perhaps, you know, to that moment that you were in London, you know, still at Deutsche Bank and, and thinking about maybe, you know, like jumping ship and entering the venture world. And if you had the opportunity of even, a, you know, perhaps, you know, sit down, you know, your younger self, that younger Tarek, and give you that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, probably uh, related to the element that I, that, I, that I said before, is to project Forward your business and see where it is going to end up, what type of business, what type, and then what what are the consequences you know what type of investors do you need, which country you should start in so I think you know we started in Colombia, not realizing the constraints of that market you know that uh, hard to raise money, you know considered a small addressable market, regulatory constraints, uh, pricing constraints, and so forth so I think that uh, when you start a business. It's it's it seems like everything is open, very similar to maybe when you graduate uh, business school, you can do any career at that point. Then you pick a career, then everything becomes, uh, you know, more more confined. So uh, I, I think uh, understanding what you're building and what's going to be an outcome, what are your advantages, I think, are very important concepts to to think about. So for us, you know, the implications of if we're lending how big can we be? How big do we want our balance sheet? What does that imply for who we work with? Uh, I think that those were important questions, probably that I was maybe more naive than I, should, than, I than I could be, you know, thinking that I could maybe start in Colombia and expand regionally, realizing that's uh, not efficient uh, at all from a from an investment perspective. I think that, uh, yeah, there was a lot of realities that uh, came through with the experience we had building Zenobi.
0: I love it. I love it. So, Tarek, for the people that are listening that want to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: Uh, yes, uh, either on LinkedIn, uh, Tarek El-Sharif, uh, Tangelo, or my email, Tarek at t- TangelloLatam.com.
0: Amazing. Well, hey, Tarek, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us.